Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Political Party podcast, this one featuring the former Secretary of State for Culture, Tessa Jowell. Um, the next show is on the 29th of October at the St. James Theatre, and that's with Michael Portillo. Tickets for that will sell out, um, so do book early. I don't think there are many left, so you can get them on the website, stjamestheatre.co.uk. Tessa was absolutely wonderful. I've been a fan of hers for so long, and um, I'd always wanted to interview her. And she's, uh, she gives real insight into the Blair Brown years, her personal relationships uh, with both prime ministers. Uh, talks about her own personal ambition, and um, things I've had to say, this is the most emotional of all the interviews um, that I've done. And you could feel the love in the room um, when she spoke about how proud she was to be a member of parliament and why she got into politics and what politics means to her and what it should mean to the rest of us. And it was um, a very, very special atmosphere as a result of having uh, a very, very special personality. And I think we may have an exclusive because uh, I asked her a question about future ambition um, uh, with regards to uh, the mayoralty of London and, um, well... Make your own mind up based on our answer, but I, I think the uh, the reaction in the room was very much that people wanted uh, Tessa to put her name forward. Um, so, um, oh yes, there's no stand up at the start of this because um, it was effectively the same. It was the day after the John Prescott gig uh, down in London, uh, so it would have been the same material. And I, I don't want to burden you with that. Um, so enjoy the show. It's absolutely wonderful. She is um, a, a very rare politician and. Uh, it, one of those interviews where afterwards you can't stop thinking about the person, you know, all day I've just been just going over so much of what she said and, and how much it meant. Um, she's remarkable. So this is Tessa Jowell. Uh, well, um, we've got a very special guest um, this evening and with it being Labour Party Conference Week, uh, highly relevant as well. Um, uh, this evening's guest is someone that I've been a huge fan of for many, many years and it, to my opinion was undoubtedly one of the greatest talents of the new Labour era and was someone that I always hoped would run for the leadership um, and I think has, has made such a huge contribution. Not many politicians that aren't Prime Minister can really point to a huge legacy. So many ministers will be happy with some obscure act from 1989 that they steered a, you know, something through. Tessa Jowell's legacy is, is absolute. It's the 2012 Olympics. Without her, it absolutely wouldn't have happened. She wasn't a bit part player. She had to convince the Cabinet. It was her idea and she saw it through and even the Conservatives, Lib Dems and every party really fully accepts that it, it was all thanks to her. It's a phenomenal thing to have achieved uh, as well as everything else. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, please give a massive reception for Dame Tessa Jowell. Um, so you've been in Manchester this week for the conference? I have. I went up on Saturday for the day and I came back and then I went up again on Monday morning and I came back very late last night. And were you in the hall for Ed's speech? I was. I was indeed. In fact, I was sitting. I, I certainly was. In fact, I, um, I had the great honour, since I'm standing down at the next election, of being sat in the front row as close to the podium as, um, as I am to you. And uh, so I 
soaked up all the atmosphere. And I was sitting, I was actually, was, I was sitting next to Doreen Lawrence. And we were trying to work out uh, why we had this great honour conferred on us. And um, I said, I think we've got two jobs to do. One is to make sure we stand up and clap. The second is to smile a lot. And the third is not to go to sleep. And um, after about 20 minutes, she mistook, she mistook, she mistook my drooping head, which was actually focusing on the second of the six pledges <laughs> Bill Britain. And was, suddenly, that, was that free installation? Suddenly, suddenly I felt this elbow in my <laughs> And I sat up like this. And uh, that, that was uh, reflecting on the second pledge. <laughs> it, was, it was funny when you watch it... Um, they did a thing this year with the camera where people were sort of sat there in the audience and so the camera would run down the line and get loads of people's reactions and you could see people sort of sat there like that and then immediately sort of come to life. <laughs> Sadiq Khan smouldered. I've never seen a reaction like Sadiq Khan was sort of sat there like that. And then he noticed the cameras on him and immediately sort of went... <laughs> When old James Bond, he was very cool. Um, well, there's always, uh, you see, it used to be the case, you know, because I've done this for so long, um, it used to be the case that there was a kind of free-for-all for where you, if you were in the shadow cabinet and then you were in the cabinet, about where you sat. And it was like the blooming January sales, <laughs> people getting there at about, you know, the conference hall would clear at about midday for the leader's speech starting at... <laughs> 2.30. And, you know, if you were a real kino and you wanted to be in the front row um, as a shadow cabinet uh, member, this is circa, you know, pre-1997, you kind of take your sandwiches and you're, <laughs> and you're you know, you're fresh, fresh and up kit as you would sit there as uh, in the front row. And then somebody would come along and move you and say the shadow chancellor had to sit there. So. <laughs> um, it's all part of the ritual humiliation of politics <laughs> you have to get used to. In terms of Ed's speech, um, it, it's had mixed reviews. Um, was it something that you thought... I mean, did it feel like a Prime Minister in waiting to you? I think he's... Uh, I mean, I'll... D- uh, <laughs> keep, it, keep it plausible, as Tony Blair would say. I mean, I think that uh, it's an incredibly difficult thing to do and I think that there was a lot in the speech which, if we get elected, will have a huge, and we do it, will have a huge impact. Um, I think that, I mean, there was something very odd and dead about the hall. Mm. And um, I think there had been a deliberate decision. Um, that, I mean, it was going to be much more celebratory, but I think that. Um, a decision was taken not to be too triumphalist and so forth after Scotland. And one of the things, I think this was actually one of the things that had an effect on our conference. I think that the people who had really been there throughout the whole referendum campaign, and you know, you can say the thing about two and a half years and, and so forth. I think that there was something almost like a sense of trauma about people that mm. what um, that, that's, that some of the uh, the menace the threatening behavior day in day out you know the cyber nats the mm. passion of the cause and 
I think that that had in some way, um, you know, found its way into the dynamic of the conference. So I think that, you know, it's fine to kind of, you know, join in the laughter of Ed's speech, you know, and the mockery by all the commentators who just basically have nothing more difficult to do than go out buy lunch for somebody who they hope will then spill the beans and decide which bottle of wine. You know, this is, you know, what he's doing is serious. You know, he does want to be prime minister. He is absolutely convinced of the kind of argument uh, and the way in which Britain can be a, a, a fairer place. And, you know, the kids in my constituency who are born into families that can offer, offer them very little in terms of a kind of structure for their ambition might actually be able to do what, you know, I always wanted my children to be able to do. And, you know, that's the great, you know, the great calling of politics. What? And so, so I think that a, a lot of what has been um, said and written is actually unfair. It will have gone by Monday, and, but what will remain are some very serious commitments and promises about how Britain could be different. And those will be offered to people next May and they'll have to decide. What's he like as a bloke like to deal with behind the scenes? Ed. Yeah. Well, I've got, you see, I am a Blairite. I was a great supporter, great friend of, of, of Tony. Um, the best. Uh, top man. Shouldn't be funny, shouldn't be funny, shouldn't be funny. Top man. <laughs> um, and I voted for David. Uh, you know, David mm. and his wife Louise are very close friends of mine. Um, but I do have a very simple um, view of this, which is that, you know, if you're a member of parliament and you're lucky enough to be a member of parliament, that your absolute obligation is to be loyal to the leader of the Labour Party who has been elected by the Labour Party. And so loyalty is not a weak characteristic. It's a strong and essential characteristic. And without that, um, parties cannot thrive. And I've learnt an awful lot um, about this. I'm very interested in how you build sort of winning teams. Mm. And um, I mean, I felt that we did that with the Olympics, you know, the sense of team. Nobody was, except Boris actually, was kind of me, 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 I'm the great champion. <laughs> um, but, and I'll, I'll, I'll tell you about Boris in a minute, but... but <laughs> But, you know, if you take someone like Dave Brailsford, you know, who does everyone know who Dave Brailsford is? He's the British Cycling. And British Cycling have, you know, they, they uh, uh, the, the, the team loyalty. You would never get Sir Chris Hoy dissing the technician who's just bound up you know, one of his handlebars, or it's not even called a handlebar, but whatever, <laughs> you know. Whatever it is, because the sense of you know if if he did that somehow that would be undermining the integrity and the strength of the team. And I feel the same about politics. Mm. You stand up for each other. You always recognise that there's enough success to go round, and you don't have to you know just because you're up doesn't mean somebody else is down, or they're up doesn't mean that you're rubbish. And you know that's one of the very destructive dynamics of politics that actually, if you, if you draw some lessons from sport, changes the behaviour. And you see, British, British Cycling have this... Um, they have somebody who is 
who's kind of authorised by the whole team to, un, to, to, to monitor winning behaviour and losing behaviour, building this sense of total team responsibility. And I think, you know, in government or in opposition, if you apply that discipline to yourself, then you're actually making a contribution and you increase the chance of the team winning. So we need that. We need that as a Labour Party. We need that as a parliamentary party and we need that as um, a shadow cabinet. This sense of total unity of purpose and an absolute commitment to uh, supporting winning um, and not uh, you know, any of the other rather kind of dysfunctional behaviour that politics tends to, and you know, frankly, that you know, the diary pieces, and you know, it's the kind. This is the um, this is the kind of cocaine of politics. You know, oh, I got my name in the paper. Oh, I was the unnamed source. You know, <laughs> all that kind of thing, um, which uh, people get. You know, incre- You know, they get off on. I am alive. I'm on television. I am alive. My name is in the papers, and it's not like that. You know, that's not how teams win and flourish and uh, I think that we can take a lot from uh, the success of some of those Olympic teams. But you must have at times your loyalty tested there must be some times where you're dealing with a leader Well I think I learnt this from from my daughter, my daughter who's over, she's 32, 33 has she's, she's one of the most emotionally intelligent people I know and she can say very tough things in a very kind way. <laughs> and I've said some very tough things privately to Tony, to Gordon, um, and to Ed. Um, but they're private, you know, so why would I talk about that? Because uh-huh. I think that that's... <laughs> Sorry about that. Because there's an hour that? left. <laughs> 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 this, was, this was a dud booking, wasn't it? <laughs> so, like with Tony, I mean, that was... Uh, I always got the impression that he deliberately surrounded himself with people that would tell him the blunt truth, that he wanted to hear that, and maybe that was something that was something that perhaps Gordon Brown didn't have in common with him. When you were frank with Tony about whatever it was, did he take it well? Yeah. Yeah, he did. And I was just thinking about I was just thinking of a good example. I'll tell you I'll right, I'll tell you a story. Does anyone remember the uh rather unsuccessful speech by the former Prime Minister to the Women's Institute? Do you remember that? Right, well that was my idea. Um, <laughs> that was my idea. This was this was our kind of incursion into Middle England, the audacity of um of the Labour Prime Minister going to address the the Women's Institute and um, so we set it all up and uh, you know that was fine and uh, I was to ride with him in the car which is always quite exciting because of the outriders you know who ride their motorbikes like ballet dancers I mean it's the most incredible thing and I did say to him once shortly before he had to leave was ousted from number 10 Downing Street um, when we were going somewhere and it took all of five minutes to get from Downing Street to Westway in the rush hour I said if you're going for a train at Paddington, I'd allow a bit longer <laughs> in the life thereafter. But anyway, so the, the Women's Institute speech, I remember we went up to, I had travelled with him in the car to Wembley, but I had to go and collect him beforehand from Number 10 Downing Street. And he'd just come back from paternity leave because, you know, little Leo had just been born and he took two weeks off. And he'd written a speech 
that everyone had laughed at because it was all about the miracle of, uh, birth. of birth and uh, nappies and, you know, <laughs> breast milk and, you know, all that sort of thing. And, you know, so, you know, whoever it was who confronted him in number 10 had sort of taken this out of his hands, right, you're not doing that, torn it up, and written a speech about Labour's case for the National Health Service. And I did have a sense of unease, A, because nobody would let me see this speech, and, um, and B, that when I went to collect him, it was still being printed off the photocopier, <laughs> which was quite a bad sign. And so he was delivered... He was, he, he was saying, he always had beautiful manners. He said, could you possibly just give me the speech? I think we have to be leaving now. <laughs> and so the speech was put in his hand and it was still warm, you know, from the printer. And um, I Can you remember, smell it? What? You know when it's warm of the printer, people like to... Yeah, yeah. Did yeah. you ever do that? No, we didn't on this occasion, actually. <laughs> but anyway, then we, um, so then we got into the back of the car and I just left him to read it, and his brow was a bit furrowed. Um, and, you know, I'd remembered the names of, especially memorised the names of all the women that he was going to meet, so I introduced them all to him. And I remember we walked up these very narrow stairs and onto the stage at the Wembley Arena, which was absolutely, it was a sea of women's faces. Um, and uh, he was introduced and he started his speech. And he talked about just coming back from paternity leave, and that was absolutely fine. And then he got on to a bit of uh, Tory bashing and building Labour's case for the National Health Service. And I suddenly heard slow hand clapping, like up there. And I was sitting behind. And it got louder and louder. I thought, no, it's not. What? <laughs> this can't be. And then people started shouting. This is the Women's Institute. And then live on Sky News. It was <laughs> also live on Sky News. And everyone at number 10 was watching this disaster unfold. And there he was. I saw his back view, you know, as he tried. And, you know, remember, this is a prime minister who was adored wherever he went. But he'd walked into the Women's Institute. Anyway, so the whole thing became a complete bloody disaster. And um, there was slow hand clapping. He couldn't speak over the slow hand clapping. Um, I, I was tempted at one moment, it's just as well I didn't, to go and take the microphone from him and say, don't be so rude to the Prime Minister. <laughs> but I didn't think that would have down, gone down very well. But anyway, but the point about did I did ever tell him hard things... I, I was sent off to do all the media and explain why this had been a small triumph rather than a major disaster. <laughs> and, um, and then um, Angie Hunter, who the legendary Angie Hunter, who looked after um, in, so much of, of what happened in those early days, um, always tells this story about how she got into the back of the car with him. And he, by his, this stage, he was looking so white and stony face. Mm. And um, she said to him, um, oh, I don't think that was too bad. <laughs> and uh, he looked at her and said, keep it plausible, darling. <laughs> <laughs> so keep it, keep it plausible is actually quite a good uh, marker um, for judging these great political moments. It, it must be very difficult for you, though, to, when you're in that situation where it's obvious the whole thing's been a catastrophe, to go out there and, and try and say that it's not. Do you ever find that difficult? Did you ever find that difficult? Yes, I did. 
I did. And I used to be sent out when things were going really bad when we were in government, as they tended to go sometimes, particularly um, in the last three years of our government. um, I used to be sent out quite a lot. And (laughs) so much so that on a Sunday morning, I would rock up to the Sky Studio or BBC or whatever it was, and uh, whoever it was uh, would say to me, is it that bad? <laughs> so, I, but again, that is, um, that was what I felt I had to do. Were there ever occasions where you just thought, I'm just going to tell the truth? That was awful. Was there ever a point at which you just have that little shred where you just go, look, all right, we all know it was rubbish. I'm not going to come here and pretend otherwise. Well, you see, what I think happened, Matt, but I was probably anaesthetised, so not fully aware, was that if you were doing Sunday television on Saturday night before what was called the conference call, the number 10 conference call, when anyone who was on a programme would be on this call and you'd be given the line to take. But that was preceded by small small microsurgery when you had a chip implanted in your brain (laughs) so that you didn't really need to go on the conference call because you were programmed already. And I, I I do remember when I broke through um, from that uh, bro- and broke loose, which was probably f- about five years into government. But you see, one of the things I'd say, I remember the, oh, that's the kind of thing Ed Miliband says, one of the things I'd say. I don't usually talk like that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but when you go as a minister for the first time to do your Today programme interview and you are a minister in Her Majesty's government, I cannot tell you the weight of responsibility you feel. So you're not going to take any risks and say, oh, this this is a rubbish, stupid (laughs) policy. I mean, I I think it's crap, so I don't know why you should think it's of any value. You you act as a member of a team, but you have to. And that is, you know, I was very lucky in government because we had, you know, such talent and... So you, you didn't want to let anybody else down. And I think that that's something which never gets talked about, this sense of responsibility, mm. A, to the position you hold, to the policy it is you're trying to persuade uh, people of the case for, and also the rest of the government. Did all of your colleagues feel like that about their no, minister? No, I don't think so. I, d- I, I, wouldn't say, I wouldn't say everyone felt like that. Because it's, I think it's impressive to hear that. that people, and I think, really, I think there's a, there's a shallow view that the public like it when people, you know, inverted commas, tell the truth and tell it like it is. But actually, that's only, that's only ever a short-term hit, isn't you it? You see, sometimes it's, sometimes it's just utterly self-indulgent. Mm. And, you know, you can either, you know, you can be the kind of media darling for a day or the person who speaks his or her mind, the person who doesn't tow the party line. But go back to Dave Brailsford, winning behaviour and losing behaviour. And that's ultimately losing behaviour because it may be that you get your place in the sun for a day and you had great headlines and independent-minded and all the rest of it. But actually, it's extremely egocentric because government can only work if you're prepared to be a member of a team. But when that team starts to disintegrate, so... um for instance, Gordon Brown became leader, um, and, and that starts to sort of erode around you. Um, how chaotic was it, like around the cabinet table when, when Brown took over? What was the, was, the, was there a marked change in behaviour from from Blair to Brown, and the behaviour of other ministers as well? Oh, definitely, 
definitely. And it was for me, it was a very, uh, it was, a, it was, a, it was a very strange transition because um, I, I had sort of pretty decided that when Tony stood down, I was going to leave the government as well. But Gordon really, really wanted me to stay. And um, I, you know, by then we'd won the Olympics and I was so committed to not just, you know, the Olympic Games, but what I thought the Olympics could do um, for people in the country, that people would discover something about themselves. It would be a sort of sometimes a private discovery or you're suddenly on a, the top of the podium having won a gold medal. But this, and I'd like to just talk a bit, a bit more about that in a minute, but this sort of unlocking of possibility, which I found so incredibly moving. And, you know, we discovered what Abraham Lincoln would call the better angels of our nature. You know, people felt good. Mm. They felt important. People who normally are just spectators felt that they mattered and they had a part to play. And the, I, I sort of encountered that during the torch relay. You know, perhaps you, you, you know, some of you uh, were there. But I remember going to watch Seb Run, who's a great, great friend of mine. Seb Run with the torch in Sheffield, which is his home. And um, talking to people in the crowd as we were waiting. And a woman said to me, she said, I'm here because he belongs to our city. And I never thought I mattered. But, you know, I, uh, it's important that I'm here. Mm. Can you imagine saying that? If you're just, and feeling, you know, you feel that sense of place. And I don't think that that's something that people feel enough, actually. Mm. And, you know, the, the image I will carry till my dying day will be... It's quite difficult to say this. Coming down um, Cold Harbour Lane in my constituency on, <laughs> on what was called the lead vehicle um, for the torch relay. And we came round. I don't know if... Uh, is anyone here from South London? Yeah. Yes! <laughs> and so you all know Cold Harbour Lane. And coming down Cold Harbour Lane, and there was Brixton out on Cold Harbour Lane. So proud. And, you know, when you have all this stuff about, now, oh, well, what does it mean to be British? You know, those people whose, uh, whose grannies and mothers came from the Caribbean um, in the late 1940s and throughout the 50s, they were there as South Londoners, so proud of what was happening. And I was in this lead vehicle with Edwin Moses, who's a bit of a legend. Um, and we came round... We came round um, from the top of um, Cold Harbour Lane and into Windrush Square. And there were about 200,000 people there Incredible. for 10 minutes while the Olympic torch came to Brixton. Now, that's what I mean about unlocking that sort of possibility. And that's the, you know, that's what you hope for in politics. And it can happen on that kind of big stage or it just happens it happens sort of privately in the classroom or, you know, somebody, you know, in a hospital, you know, hospital ward or the sense of discovery that people have about themselves and their possibility. And you put it all together with 200,000 people and you think the year before Brixton, parts of Brixton were in flames with mm -hmm. the riots, this sense of disconnection and despair. But there people found the other, um, the better angels of their nature. It was amazing. Um, 
So, in terms of Gordon Brown... What about Gordon? Well, just in terms of how... Um, the, the, the culture changed from, from, from Blair to Brown. Oh, right. oh, I see, that was a bit of a segue. I, I wasn't changing the subject. It was a good segue, it was a good segue. Was, I wasn't changing the subject, though. I'd, I felt slightly... When I was in... When I was in Gordon's cabinet, shall I tell you this story? Um, that... You see, basically, he sacked me. This Twice. Is, this is, no, only once. Is no, only once. no, only once. But he said, he said, I really want you to be Minister for London and Minister for the Olympics. And that's, you know, a big offer. And I said, fine. So um, you want me to stay in the Cabinet? Oh, no, no, no. I, I can't have you in the Cabinet. <laughs> and I said... Well, in that case, in that case, I'm not going to, you know, I don't think I should stay. I think you should, you know, you should be able to choose your own people. No, no, no. He said, I want you to attend the cabinet. And I said, but not if I'm not in the cabinet. I've been in the cabinet for six years, Gordon. Mm. He said, no, no, I want you to attend the cabinet. He said, nobody will know the difference. (laughs) (laughs) So I said, oh, right. (laughs) I said... I said, fine. Said, uh, and so I was trying to pin down exactly what this meant. And I said, so I thought this, is, this probably sounds a bit crude. I said, so full money then, Gordon? <laughs> he said, oh, no. <laughs> they won't let me. They won't let me. But I then felt, and then I, I, I phoned Tony. And I so phoned a friend. And I said, I'm being a bit revelatory, actually. I think... I, 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 I can't, it's too late to say this is off the record, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I said, so I phoned Tony and I said, Gordon's, um, uh, Gordon's uh, offered me uh, Minister for London and uh, Minister for the Olympics uh, attending the Cabinet. Um, and I said, what do you think I should do? To which he said, well, darling, I think if the Prime Minister asks you to do something, you have to do it. So I said yes. So he convinced you to, to serve yeah. under Gordon? So I said yes. So yeah. what? And I don't regret it for one moment. I don't regret it for one moment. And, you know, Gordon and I really worked at our relationship. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 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 I wonder what else he asked you to do. Um, <laughs> was he... Well, firstly, just on those, those ministers that attend Cabinet but aren't in it, is yes. there then a difference in your relationship with other ministers? Are you allowed to speak... If you attend and but aren't a member, <laughs> yes, there was one particularly disobliging minister who he'd uh, appointed to his cabinet, and I sat down in. The, uh, I'm not. I'm keeping this gender neutral, so you can't guess who it is. I sat down in what turned out to be this new cabinet minister's seat, okay. and this new cabinet minister came up to me and said, "She was." <laughs> Firmly in the other tribe, as it were, um, said, You're down the bottom. And exactly, pointing to the end of the table. Why would Yvette Cooper like, say that to you? <laughs> she didn't. It wasn't Yvette. It wasn't. She would never say a thing like that. Anyway, there we are. So um, that's all, but it all, you know, it all kind of settled down eventually. Um, 
but it, but it, <laughs> but it just, you, you know, I mean, let me say this. I, 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 I want to say this about Gordon, that mm. he was, I mean, I think Gordon was a brilliant chancellor. Mm. And I used to sit in cabinet and look around the table and think, if I had a ticket to spend an hour with one member of the cabinet talking politics, who would it be? And I always thought it was Gordon, because he did have this incredible... Um, kind of intellectual breadth and depth, he put the whole story of what the government was trying to do together. And, I mean, he was really, and at the height of his powers, he was, he was absolutely brilliant. Mm. And I do quite a lot of work in... Um, good. He's in. <laughs> um, I do, you know, I do um, a lot of work with African health ministers and African finance ministers, and I do quite a lot in, in Africa. And Gordon is still a god there because of everything that he did um, with uh, development, microfinance, malaria. You know, the fact that um, you know, fewer children are dying of malaria is, is Gordon. And, you know, what he had this ability to do was never take no for an answer and grind through, wear people down, you know, until he got to the right result. And in virtually every case, the result was a virtuous result, which was better. I just don't think he should have insisted that Tony Blair stood down as Prime Minister. So why... Because it, it was incredible watching the transformation of Gordon Brown, because it was this brilliant, shining light, and as, as someone who was just an observer at the time was in awe of Gordon Brown, and then as, as his career developed, he then almost became this sort of Shakespearean tragic figure yeah. where he was becoming twisted by jealousy. And it was, it a ter- it was terrible, because he... Uh, you know, he's, uh, he was a brilliant Chancellor but he didn't know how to be Prime Minister. And uh, actually, you know, you, you need to be able to do at least 10 things, and most of them at the same time, mm. if you're Prime Minister. And Gordon couldn't do that. You know, he couldn't let go of the little things in order to focus on the, the big things. And, and also, you know, to, to be absolutely honest, there was so, such a legacy of toxicity that it mm. was very... I mean, it was extraordinary that we, we did you know, as a government, what we did, you know, as, as much as we did, um, because there was this fault line. And then what was it like, so when he was Prime Minister around the Cabinet table, did he try and be more friendly with people, or was he awkward? Well, I mean, to begin with, there was a sense, of, you know, that, 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 you know, this was a big change, and... Uh, you know, Tony would always say you run out of road as Prime Minister. You know, 10 years is probably as, as, as much as you can do. And I think there was a, um, a great sense of, of, um, of hope at that time. Um, but being, you know, being Prime Minister relies on uh, building, you know, goes back, to, goes back to teams. First of all, you have to be comfortable with yourself. Mm. Secondly... You have to be, in a strange way, um, non-tribal because, you know, you have such an important constitutional position that um, you can't just go around sticking your fingers in the eye of the opposition and sort of spitting at them and spitting with the people who, spitting at the people who don't agree with you. Yeah. You have to try and rise above that. And I think that, you know, that Gordon's... Gordon's um, politics were old-fashioned in that sense. But it's an interesting thing that he's just found himself again. 
in the last 10 days of the referendum campaign and he just dominated and there's a lesson really in in a, po a, a lot of politics and 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 achieving political change is filling the space there is a space and you fill it you don't ask anybody you don't uh you know you you, you don't expect questions about why you're there and gordon just did that mm. in the referendum campaign suddenly from being um you know miserable and angry with himself in kakodi <laughs> suddenly there he was dominating this great moment in uh in scotland's history and i think that he will he will continue to dominate the resolution of the post-referendum settlement. A lot of people say that he, he could potentially be first minister, and it's something that he's considering. Do you think that's just gossip? Or I don't. I have no. I have absolutely no idea. So just, but it's incredible, isn't it? That one speech made everyone go, "Oh God, he's actually great." Yeah. <laughs> it was uh, even, and it reminded you of the old Gordon. You're like, he, he always did have skills, and then there was just that sort of tragic period yeah. in his life where he just coincided with him being prime minister. And, yeah. Uh, <laughs> It, it, it was remarkable watching him speak in Scotland because but that actually, you, you know something. Although, I mean, I've had you know such rows with Gordon, such arguments with him, um, face to know, face. What? Face Fa to face. Face to face. Face to face. And were they? I mean, it was, were they ever scary? Because there were rumours. Well, that I mean, I can say this. I could. I can tell you about this because uh, because um, this has been documented. Um, but I did say to him in two thousand uh, in early two thousand and ten that um, I, I went to see him um, to tell him that I thought that he should stand down as leader because we wouldn't win the election uh, if he led us. And um, I remember uh, I had half an hour uh, between 6 and 6.30 on the 4th of July 2010. It's lodged in my memory. And I got, I got in to his study to see him and I won't go into everything that passed between us on in that half hour but I remember feeling like I think Tom Daly must feel when he's on a 30 meter diving board because Gordon wanted to talk about other things not what I'd come to talk to him about and I think he must have had some inkling and I did I thought it's quite a big deal to tell the Prime Minister that you think he ought to stand down mm. and I thought um, soon I kept on coming and saying, Banky, you've got a Banky Moon call at 6.30 and it was already seven minutes past. And I thought, I felt as if I was looking down and, it was, and I was 90 metres up yeah. and I had to jump. And so I started and I thought so carefully about what I had to say. And we had, uh, we had a very, um, you know, he, he wasn't furious. We had a, a very engaged conversation. And we do, you know, I, he said, if I was going to stand down, I should have done it last summer. It's too late now. I didn't agree. Um, and I, I, I said to him, you know, it isn't fair um, that people don't get you. Um, but you don't, you know, I, but Tony always used to say to me, if you ever think that I have become a liability to the Labour Party, you must tell me. Um, and then I'll consider what I'm going to do. Um, but, and I only ever once said to him, you're so far out on a limb, you know, you have a foreign policy that only you support. Right. And I remember him looking at me and saying, mm, that's probably right. 
Um, and I, and, and I, you know, I felt that I had to say this to Gordon in the same, by the same token. Mm. And I think if you're a senior minister and so forth, and I say this now, I would never, ever have said it at the time because um, it's, it has been documented. Mm. So it is a matter of public record. But this is, you know, I don't think at the time, you know, this sort of exchange should be public. I don't think you should go and chat behind your, you know, your hand to a friendly journalist who's then going to, uh, you know, g- give you all sorts of favourable <coughs> mentions. Did you ever consider resigning to try and force his hand? No. It was never something that was... Because I remember with, uh, when they had Hazel Blears and uh, James Pennell in the run-up to those local elections sort of on the day, and it felt like there was a critical mass and everyone was saying that David Miller was going to either resign or throw his hat into the ring or challenge Gordon. It felt as if, though, there was almost a pitch invasion mentality where if two or three more would have gone, the flood banks would have opened and everyone would have just... But nobody was going to. Because, I, I, you know, I'd had a whole number of conversations. And, but I don't really want to talk about... I mean, I think this is, this is sort of unnecessarily brutal um, about, about Gordon. It mm. was a particularly bad time in what's been a very long... Uh, political career of Gordon's and you know if Gordon and I had not worked together on Sure Start we wouldn't have Sure Start Mm. and he you know I will always be grateful that he understood that he and I had blazing rows about the Olympics but then when he was you know when he really became engaged he was fantastic and constructive and purposeful and I think you know, politics is such a cruel business, Matt. I think that's what it's important to remember. It's important to remember the way Gordon came back last week and just reminded everybody, not that he was a great, just a great orator, but he's a person who's just a profound and passionate patriot. And he did something incredible for Scotland. And, you know, thank goodness, thank you. You know, the United Kingdom owes Gordon a debt for that. Um. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, Things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. The secret to visibly firmer, summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dull, dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Rich yet never greasy, Andaria Algae Body Oil is formulated with sustainably sourced seaweed to help replenish the skin's moisture barrier and seven nourishing active botanical oils for results you can see and feel all over. The best part? It's signature scent. A blend of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. This all-natural scent is unforgettable. Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code GLOW. 
In terms of the Olympics then, in 2002, you were the only person around the cabinet table advocating it. Yep. It was your idea. Um, how much resistance was there in the immediate sense to, to London putting in a bid for 2012? A lot. I'd say from, from everyone pretty, around the yeah, table. Absolutely. Why do you want to do that for? It'll be too expensive. You know, we won't win, you know. Well, it's a ridiculous idea. So then so, how did you go about convincing... Did you take each... Well, I think, yes, and I think that the, the important thing with, if you're trying to broker and negotiate um, a, a decision as big as that, and it was a huge decision for us at the time, um, you've got to give it time. Um, you, a lot of bad decisions or decisions are badly taken when you force the pace before people are ready mm. to agree. And so I, I saw every uh, member of the cabinet. And I also, I also had banked my gang. And, you know, you, you always... This is the other thing I always say to people about, about, about politics, that um, you should... That's Ed Miliband again. You see, <laughs> very powerful influence. Do you think... Um, you, you, just, there's an interesting point there, though, isn't there, about political language and how it... Uh, a culture just sort of adopts phrases yes. and, and, and body language. Because uh, a lot of people think that, old oh, politicians are taught to sound in a particular way or, or move in a particular way. But the reality is, if, if you're surrounded by people who talk like that all the time, you just end up... I know. This is a bit of a segue away yeah. from the, the, the Olympics. But um, I sometimes feel a prisoner of that. And I just want to get out and stop using all this kind of political bollocks. You know, <laughs> it's, but you do. It is like a language that you learn. And everybody starts, uh, ev- everybody starts talking in the same language and you understand each other, but it isn't how real people speak. You know, I don't, uh, I don't talk to people like that when I meet them at the bus stop or um, knocking on their doors um, in, in my constituency. And uh, I listened to myself the other day. I know, I was on Daily Politics and I was talking about the Scottish referendum and I think I was so bad and unpersuasive and unconvincing. And I grew up in Scotland. I mean, this is not something that I felt entirely indifferent to at all. And I just, I thought, why can't I break out of this language? Nobody would have seen, you know, this kind of language, this conversation I was having with myself in my head. And, of course, the cybernats spat on me, um, you know, across Twitter. Metaphorically. Metaphorically. Well, and, you know, you know how they do, how they do uh, um, in Twitter. So I think that it is, uh, I think that it is one of the things that is a risk in in politics, that... You know, I think, you know, I, I really uh, just try to talk like uh, I've always talked. And then s- sometimes I just hear myself talk. My kids say this to me, Mum, you're just talking like a politician. And, um, and then I don't. Um, but then it creeps back again. And I think that that is, I think there's a great deal of ambivalence about what kind of politicians we want actually mm. and I was doing a phone in recently and it was it was very very clear do you want politicians who are exactly like you I was getting on the bus this morning and the man behind me said um, it's very nice to see you use the bus and I felt like saying well what what else how else do I get to work then um, but they presume you got chauffeur driven cars I used to I had my, my driver Delroy um, and uh, my driver Delroy for four years, and when we we had a very tearful parting at the time of the election, 
Um, and he'd driven me into the cabinet and then the government fell and it was quite clear that there was going to be a coalition. And I remember Radio 5 Live phoned me and said, uh, Mr. Al, can we do an interview with you about the fall of the government? Um, can you just tell us where you are? And I said, I'm on the 214 bus. <laughs> <laughs> but Delroy and I, you, you, you develop such a close relationship with, um, you know, I, I did 13 years in government with my, with my driver. And it's quite domestic, really. And we used to buy soft mints every week. And we used to take it in turns about who was going to buy the soft mints for the car. <laughs> and from time to time, Delroy's now a private chauffeur. Um, I get home, and in my letterbox, there's a tube of soft mints. Oh. <laughs> He's haunting you. <laughs> Is that the end of the sixth sense? Devil, we never existed. <laughs> no, he did. He always did. I, do any of you listen to Eddie Nestor on BBC London? De- Eddie, Eddie was always a great friend of Delroy, so we always had a message for Delroy while he was waiting outside while I was in the studio. Um, she won't be long, Delroy. <laughs> <laughs> we'll come on to we'll come back to the numbers, but just, just on the coalition stuff. Did you ever feel that Labour should have tried to negotiate themselves yes, into coalition? Uh, yeah, I think we should have done. I think we should have. Done. But we didn't. I think we should have tried harder. Um, my last questioning cabinet was to say to Gordon, "Who is your negotiating team for the coalition?" And he kind of. <laughs> looked at me as if why did you ask that question (laughs) Um, but I don't think we ever really tried but that said that said I think you can sell too much in coalition Mm. negotiations and I think it's sort of killed the Liberal Democrats for a very long time and um, I think that the is that a Liberal Democrat waking up? <laughs> the, the, the smart chap just oh. there in his uh, three piece. Oh right. I think um, I think that uh, I mean there's a lot of you know if we if we are the largest party if we don't win outright um, the next election if we were the largest party should we enter into coalition with uh, the Liberal. Democrats, and I think that that is at this stage an unanswerable question. Mm. And I think there's almost a Shame kind of. Shane was going to ask it. Uh, well, well, I, well, well, let me give you the best answer I can, which is that just just supposing the Liberal Democrats have lost half their seats, is it kind of morally right? Is it morally right to uh, bestow on them the responsibility of government? But it's parliamentary arithmetic, isn't it? I mean, you could say, would it be morally right for the parties that finished second and third last time to have formed a government? Yeah, that all that, all these are, these are the, all, which is why it isn't only a question of arithmetic. Yeah. I think it's, it, 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 there's also a question of decency. And I think people are very, you know, the, the, the people who elect us are very, um, are very live uh, to that. And, you know, I think... Uh, Maybe if, if we're the largest party, uh, but we don't c- command an overall majority, then you know, there is this um, thing which is called confidence and supply, which is that you reach agreement with the minority parties that certain uh, manifested commitments will be met. Okay. And it, it almost inevitably means that there'll be another election um, before very long. But these, are, I think it's impossible to answer these questions, yeah. Matt, at this stage. Um, so, back to the Olympics, you, you ended up working very closely. One of the things that really impressed me about Sebco and, and Jeremy Hunt was that when the new government came in, they very much kept you on at the, yeah. at the heart of things. 
what was it like then dealing with Tories uh, as, a, as a job? Well, I mean, the. <laughs> Oh, no, 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 no. I, I, there's, there's many that I really like. Well, I uh, think they were very... Some of my best friends are Tories. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> and actually, you know, and actually Seb is one of my closest friends and I became very close friends with Hugh Robertson, who was the minister who um, really did most um, for the Tories on the Olympics. Very, very close with him. And the thing is that we were bound by this sense of passion that we had about what it was we were together creating. And it really was like that. I do remember, though, I do, I do remember um, Seb and I were going to run the marathon together to mark the Olympics in 2012. <laughs> and I texted him towards the end of 2011 to say, shouldn't we be getting into training? And he <laughs> phoned me up and said... Tessa, my knees are just not up to it. <laughs> and then we were both opening a sport, the new sport and fitness centre at UCH. This is roll forward um, two years. And the surgeon, because I've had trouble with my knee, um, was, you know, is this genius who um, has created this sport and fitness um, exercise um, centre, state of the art for, you know, just weekend joggers or Cristiano Ronaldo. Uh, no, except not there because it's a NHS hospital. Um, <laughs> um, anyway, but um, I remember Seb and I were both at the opening and rather solicitously, the head of UCH said um, we were talking about our knees and um, this wonderful surgeon in response to the question about how my knees were, surgeon answered for me, he said, we're coping. <laughs> but he did say he thought Seb and I had one good knee between us. So just as, just as well we didn't run the marathon. Did you, did you have to deal with Boris much during the Olympics? I did, yes. And I dealt with Boris a lot during the Olympics. And Boris, when he first arrived after he'd defeated Ken, was, was a bit like a cuckoo in the nest because he, and he was slightly our functional outgroup. Because we were all, you know, we were hurtling towards 2012 at this point. And, um, you know, he wanted to do, oh, there must be lots of money that's being wasted, squandered away in this socialist project. Um, and, you know, all that. So we, we actually just let him do that. And, of course, he discovered that there wasn't any money being squandered. You know, it was all very tightly tied down. And then, he, you know, Boris did actually become a, a team player. Yeah. And... One of the things that he did understand, and I would not have been able to do this without his support, um, he did understand which other members of the, the kind of close Olympic team didn't understand in the same way was democracy. And I, we had five Olympic boroughs and who, that were benefiting, very, very poor boroughs were, were benefiting from um, the kind of Olympic gold dust. And I really wanted barking to become an Olympic borough and to have a big Olympic facility that would you know, g give a real kickstart to economic regeneration after the Games, but also spread some of the, you know, this sort of magic that the Olympics brought. And um, nobody else wanted it, but Boris got the point, and he and I just kind of drove that through. But he got the point about democracy. And um, so, uh, 
you know, I'm not, you know, I'm not one of these people who, who, you know, cuss Boris. I think that he is, uh, he caught the zeitgeist he at did, the moment, yeah. and he has broken lots of the commitments he made. He's reduced police numbers, hasn't built homes. His emission zone is a disaster. But in a way, that isn't what Boris is in politics for. You know, he doesn't. He, doesn't, you know, he's, he, he just isn't. And I mean, I think that the kind of legacy image of Boris is. Um, we're holding two Union Jacks <laughs> on a zip wire, <laughs> and you know, and it was a phenomenon during the Olympics yeah. that whenever he appeared, um, everybody started cheering and wanted to take pictures of him. Do you think some politicians envy that that he can be so gaff prone and almost so willfully destructive at times of his own reputation, and yet the more he seems to almost deliberately mess it up, the more the public love him. And, you know, when you say about being on the daily politics and listening to yourself speak and thinking, why am I speaking like this? You look at Boris, who's invented his own style and is flourishing. Is that something that you envy sometimes? <laughs> no. Well, you see, I, I think... This sounds very dreary. I think pop politics is a very serious business, actually. Yeah. And I, I think that I, I'm always slightly uneasy about mix, you know, when politicians want to become celebrities. And, you know, I, I was asked to do Strictly Come Dancing for sport relief. Um, you know, when we were doing, you know, yeah. in about maybe years ago, long time ago, when I had two decent knees. Um, <laughs> and I thought, you know what will happen, you know, if I do Strictly, and I was quite tempted, and I thought, if I do it and I have to rehearse for you know seven hours a week or or more they'll say you know the silly bitch she you know she look at her on strictly come dancing when she should be sorting out the olympic budget mm. and that's what i was uh, but that was my job i'm not you know i'm not a kind of television star i'm there to i was there to make the olympics work and you know sitting you know going through all the routines that you have to do when you're delivering policy so i suppose that's what i think and you know my great advice strong advice to boris would be don't become leader of the tory party i think that he's you know he has carved out a niche i think that um he has brought sort of zeitgeist uh you know he did he did capture the the zeitgeist of London, but he's not somebody. He's he is an entertainer. Um, I mean, he's actually got a lot of warmth. I mean, I, mm. I like him actually. I and I've known him for a very very long time. I do like him, um, but I think he'd be a terrible prime minister because being a prime minister, you know, going back to what I was saying about Gordon uh, and Tony. You know, it's really hard work. And every day, you know, you don't know whether you're going to have to deal with some, you know, terrible hostage taking or, you know, a school that's been, you know, that, that some, there's been some scandal in relation to or one of your ministers has got into, you know, terrible trouble or maybe we're about to go to war. You know, this is what you have to deal with day in, day out. And it is the serious business of government. And so um, that's why, not that he'll listen to me, I would say to him, don't do it, mm. Boris. Um, did you ever want to be Prime Minister? Do you know, I've never wanted to be Prime Minister. I've never wanted to be Prime Minister. I suppose I've, I've always, uh, and this may be, you know, uh, 
I kind of can't quite believe it. What, that you weren't? <laughs> no, no that, I, that I was what I was, you know. I, I never thought I would be in the cabinet or in the government, uh, or even that I'd become a member of parliament. And that's why, you know, one of the things I've always felt every day is a sense of awe that I am, and that I represent 80,000 people. And it's, and it's not something that I feel a shred of cynicism about. And, you know, I think that being elected and being charged of that responsibility is a kind of sacred responsibility, actually. And it's why I just hate this devaluing and degrading of politics and politicians. You know, I, I was absolutely furious last week that there was a poster advertising Andrew Marr's book mm. in Westminster Tube Station. And I can't remember exactly, I can't, you know, I got so angry because uh, it sort of said, you know, a novel of intrigue, you know, power, ruthlessness and corruption. Uh, West, you know, Westminster, so business as usual then. And it isn't. You know, it isn't. There, you know, after the expenses scandal, six MPs went to prison. Um, and because, you know, so, so you know, 1% of a workforce of 650 went to prison because they had done something very, very bad. Mm. But I just don't think that the presumption, the public presumption should be that the other 644, you know, are shysters who are only in it for themselves and all the rest of it. You know, and I think that decency in politics is a really important a really important thing and that sense of belief in what politics can do and you know I was my first job was as a childcare officer in Brixton and then I became uh, and then I was a psychiatric social worker working at the Maudsley and I think I was I was quite I was pretty good at it and I I could actually change the pattern of people's lives and you know I remember one lady um, and I can see her flat now in the middle of what is now the middle of my constituency and she would never go out she had no gas she had no electricity um, I don't know how she had running water she had no furniture and I mean she had a severe and profound mental illness and I used to go and visit her twice a week uh, for about three months and after about three months she agreed to let me in, and the, her flat was indescribable. And we made a relationship that, in the end, meant that she agreed to come with me to Bon Marche in Brixton to buy a bed, and you know, so that she didn't sleep on the floor anymore, and so forth. And I thought, you know, I can do that. Um, but actually, the big solutions to the life of someone like her, uh, the solutions that politics gives. And I did, uh, you know, when I was at the Maudsley, I did a lot of psychotherapeutic training and I was actually going to become uh, an analyst. I trained as a family therapist and I, I've always been very interested in, uh, you know, and uh, I've, it, throughout my political life, I've, I've been struck by, you know, the, the power of, um, intended and unintended human behaviour. Mm. And one of the things that I learned, which is a parallel between um, politics and that kind of um, em 
empathy, um, connection with people, is that people have got to be ready for what it is as a politician you have to say. And if they're not ready, then there's no, there's no public resonance. And to go right back to what we were saying at the beginning, Matt, I think it'll be quite interesting to see how in the long run you know, Ed's much mocked and panned speech lives in people's minds. Mm. Not his delivery and, you know, all the rest of it, but the fact that you might just not have to wait so long to see your doctor. Um, and, you know, if you've got a 13-year-old who's not doing very well at school, that they might really get an apprenticeship. So, you know, these are the things by which I think in the private world of the people who lined the Olympic torch relay route in Brixton and mm. in, in Sheffield. You know, these are the things that sometimes we don't account for. It's quite rare to um, see a politician so emotional about representing people. Um, I don't think I've ever seen that before. Um, which is very, it's amazing to see. Um, given that you're such a gifted politician, have such a connection with people, I mean, would you consider running for Mayor of London? Yes. Would I consider running as Mayor of London? Yeah. I'd consider yeah. it. That does feel like an excuse. Wouldn't I be mad not to consider it? I think you would. I think just you, you would just be the best Mayor of London we could ever have. Oh. I think but it feels like that's... Oh. oh, my word. Um, Right, I'm going to, uh, I'll open up the floor to questions. Um, now, uh, Tris has got um, a, a roving mic, so I'll try and sort of, uh, to save him uh, running right across the room. Uh, uh, okay, if we, if, we'll stop with the chap at the back, because he's very passionate. If we can ask for, um, Hi. so we can get as many people in. Hello? One sentence questions and one sentence uh, answers, please. It's not going to be one sentence. But listen, you speak very passionately, and I really applaud you as a Labour member. And Gordon Brown, for me, was a great politician up until he kind of changed his mind. But how did you feel about the, the Labour Party in Scotland standing on the same ticket as the Tories, UKIP and the Orange Order? You I, mean as part of the... Yeah, and... The, uh, the Better Together campaign. And you spoke about better angels. You know, do you not think it's better for people to determine their own future rather than to have other people determine their future? I think sometimes... I think sometimes the... Um, there are interests which transcend tribalism. And I think you see increasingly... I mean, as, as I, I've been a member of the Labour Party for 45 years. I fought 12 elections. I, have, I was a councillor for 15 years and I will have been a member of Parliament for 23 years. And I am Labour in every fibre of my body, but I'm much less tribal than I used to be. And I think that... Um, I think that you can often build s the basis of solid long-term change if you uh, work with people who don't necessarily share your, uh, your, your politics. They may share your values. I mean, you build a coalition of values. Yeah, you know, yeah, but, okay, yeah, we, we need to get another people, point, Mike, okay. because you've, you had three Sorry. questions already. And you know, I think you've had a fair answer, to be fair. Okay. No, you don't think I... <laughs> you you okay. don't think you've had a fair answer, do you? No, 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 but I think... I, I don't believe the Labour have the right people, but I think we need to have a bit of a change. That's 
No, I don't apologise. <laughs> Perfectly legitimate. <laughs> okay, is there anyone in this section that's got a question? The gentleman at the front. Yeah, Tristan. Cheers, there we go. The UKIP guy. <laughs> well, actually, listening to Tess this evening's made me, made me remember why I used to be a member of the Labour Party. And I was. You've got another exclusive. Come back, come back, come back. <laughs> but maybe a little bit more flippant than the guy at the back, but. Of the 650 MPs in the House of Commons, who, given your personal up-close experience with them, would make the best Prime Minister at the moment? Good question. Who do I think would make the best Prime Minister at the moment? Excluded. 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 (laughs) (laughs) I think... Well, I mean, let's let's exclude all the you know the existing uh, the, the the existing leaders because because I actually think that if Ed is given the chance, I think he'll be a very good prime minister. I think he'll be a very good prime minister. And um, who do I think would be? You see, I th- I think the I think the uh, I, t- I tell you what I think the problem is that there are a lot of young people. We've got some, I think we've got some fantastically talented MPs who are coming up, but they're not ready to be uh, Prime Minister yet. You know, you have to have lived and you have to have had, you know, at times, you know, Tony said, Blair said, at the end of 10 years, he said, you know, I feel, uh, you know, I'm leaving just as I feel I now know how to do the job. Mm-hmm. And that's the, uh, you know, that's the, uh, the, the, that's the paradox. And I think, uh, I don't fully understand how difficult being Prime Minister is. You know, I was a Secretary of State and I did a lot else um, beyond um, being a departmental Secretary of State. I did all the humanitarian support for families after 9-11, after 7-7, you know, and so forth. Um, But, you know, they will be great in five or so so years' time. Somebody who would run a mile at the thought of being Prime Minister is Alan Johnson. And I think Alan is... I think Alan has... He's done a lot. And I'll tell you why. I don't think Alan often has my daily politics moment, which is, why do I keep talking like this? (laughs) Um, Because I think he has a tremendous... Um, fluency. I think he's incredibly at ease and comfortable with himself. And, you know, his book is incredibly moving, isn't it? Um, um, A boy. And he... So I think Alan could be Prime Minister. And I think he'd be a very... I think, you see, the greatly undervalued quality of modern politics is emotional intelligence Mm. and empathy. And I think if you can't be empathetic with the people that you serve and the people that you represent, then you, you're only talking with kind of half your person, as, as, as it were. There's a chap, uh, chap at the back uh, with, a, with a beard, I think. No beard. No beard. No beard. So you just grow to, one. Ju- <laughs> I might. Um, just to build on the, your answer to the last question... Um, it seems that elsewhere in the world that it's very common for politicians or 
prime ministers or presidents to be in their 60s, and yet we seem to be focusing on leaders who are in their 40s. You talked about emotional intelligence and other experience, such as Alan Johnson. Do you think we'll ever return to a stage where we look to people with much more experience in the real I world? I think it's a very good idea to look to older people, <laughs> older people with bus passes to uh, carry great responsibility. But I'd also, by the same token, I don't think you should pretend that you're 21 and uh, you're kind of out with youth. I mean, I think you just have to... Uh, you know, I think there is... Uh, you know, I, th- I, I, I think experience is so important. You know, I wish, I'd, I wish I'd known 25 years ago when I first stood for Parliament, you know, you know, what I know now. And it's one of the reasons that I love mentoring our candidates and just downloading, you know, what I've learned because I sort of feel it helps them cut some corners mm. that I kind of had to walk all the way, <laughs> had to walk all the way around. So I think that is important. I think, I think experience is important and I think it's important to share your experience and be generous about it. Right, we've got time for one more. Has anyone got a burning, like a burning question that they absolutely must? The gentleman there. What's the question? Um, you said earlier that only 1% of politicians were actually uh, convicted and went to prison for expense scandals. What percentage of politicians do you think honestly are as passionate about representing constituents as you are? Great oh, question. Are as passionate about rep- Well, you know, I, I could give you a long list of people. I think you have to assume the vast majority of people are passionate about their constituents and their constituencies. And, you know, it's what gives you... I mean, it's like, you know, especially if you become a minister, you become a secretary of state, your constituency is your docking station. And, you know, I, one of the things that is really important to do is to sort of protect the time that you spend in your constituency. And there's a bit of my constituency that I drive into and it's down I don't anyone live in Herne Hill here yeah. yes so you know the bottom of Milkwood Road and I, that was my kind of Friday morning moment when I got when I got down to the bottom of Milkwood Road and just felt you know I, it was just that kind of ah, you know here I am and um, I have just always found um, the most kind of revitalising thing when you feel depleted by all the kind of, you know, the grind of, um, of, of, you know, just difficult ministerial jobs is sitting down with a group of the people you represent and listening to them and listening to their wisdom and their generosity and their reasonableness and sometimes their anger, um, but just listening to them and you just feel recharged by that. Uh, absolutely. Well, well, ladies and gentlemen, that brings us to the end uh, of uh, uh, the evening. Uh, my next guest in October is Michael Portillo. Uh, <laughs> and then Luciana Berger in November, and more guests to be announced uh, early for next year. Um, uh, before we go, please thank uh, John Sound and Tris and all the bar staff here at the Stadium Theatre.
Oh. And just before, just before Matt closes, I want Duncan Chapman and Shamir Patel, who are two of the people who run my constituency office, and Catherine Dawson, who's one of my caseworkers, my constituents' caseworkers, to stand up and take a bow. <laughs> <laughs> Come <laughs> well, folks, that brings us to the end. Um, Tessa, by far, um, one of the best guests we've ever had here. And, oh, um, thank you. By far, one of the most just authentic. Uh, just, it's incredible. Because I still get cynical about politics, particularly having spent you know, a few days at the Labour Party conference. <laughs> it's, it's just, it, it's so reassuring to know, I think, for all of us, it, it's so reassuring uh, um, to know that there are people like you that are still oh, in leading roles. You. Ladies and gentlemen, Tessa Jow. Well, Tessa Jowell, what an incredible politician what a, and what a wonderful person. And you could feel the atmosphere in the room as the, as the interview developed, um, really bring an audience in and you could feel the emotion. I could feel myself welling up a couple of times. I could see Tessa getting, getting quite teary-eyed and I didn't know what to do. I didn't know whether to put my arm around her or... Um, not. I, I opted not to. <laughs> um, but I thought, if this, you know, if we carry on down a, a couple of lines of questioning, then we're both going to end up in tears. It was just so powerful to see politics mean so much to someone, and so reassuring that Tessa had been at the, you know, the heart of government. But I think everyone in that room, and I, I don't know if you had the same experience listening back to it, would want her to be in a position of authority. Obviously, we talked about the mayoralty. I mean, the the reaction in the room was very much that people wanted her to do it. She's obviously considering it. Um, if she stands, I think it'd be absolutely great. And it, it, I think it sounds as if, though, who knows? But it felt as if, though, um, people wanted her to do it, and I hope that helps her make the decision. Um, remarkable stuff. Um, and just so honest. You know, the stuff about the um, political class and how they speak and how she listens back to herself sometimes and not want to speak like that. And it makes me realise when I'm cynical about the way politicians speak sometimes that they're probably just as sick of it as we are. But just a culture develops and you find yourself speaking like that because that's the way that the, uh, that the game works, in a way. That that's, you're used to hearing people speak like that on the daily politics or news night and you, then you end up doing it. So I, I, it, was, it was quite a good thing to, to hear because I, I think now when I watch politicians interviewed, a little part of me will be a bit... Uh, bit less cynical. Um, Michael Portillo is the next show. That's on the 29th of October. Tickets are available on the website, stjamestheatre.co.uk. I hope you enjoyed it. I'm, I'm still thinking about so much of what Tessa said. Um, which, you know, with all the interviewees, they, they always leave an impression. Uh, but with Tessa, it's, it's such a different experience. You feel like you've met... Just so much more emotional. So you just feel a, a, a totally different connection um, with her than, than you would um, maybe... Maybe someone has been a great raconteur, but you, you don't get that emotional side. Um, so she's an inspiration to us all and uh, a reminder, particularly of what sometimes feels like such a divided nation, that there are politicians out there capable of uniting us all and, and making us see the good in the world. If you have enjoyed the show, as usual, please tell your friends and family about it. And um, I mean, there might be the same group of people. Um, but yes, thank you. I always peter out at the end of these things, so I'm just going to say goodbye. Goodbye. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.